2: mitchell and welcome to bring it on
1: good evening i am william hosea sarah pruitt from the history channel shares that the results of the u.s presidential election of 1876 were a mess a democratic candidate had emerged with the lead in the popular vote but 19 electoral votes from four states were in dispute in 1877 congress convened to settle the election and their solution proved to be the beginning of the end for reconstruction in the South.
2: At the time, support for reconstruction was dwindling across the nation. With the Republican Party dominating the federal government for nearly a decade after civil war ended, thanks in part to thousands of newly enfranchised African-American men, congressional reconstruction policies resulted in biracial governments across the South by the early 1870s. In 1876,
1: when the nation went to the polls to elect Ulysses S. Grant's successor, Democratic candidate Samuel Tilden, governor of New York, emerged with a lead of more than 260,000 popular votes. But Tilden had amassed only 184 electoral votes one shy of the number needed to defeat his Republican opponent, Governor Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio.
2: Returns from three states, Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina, were in dispute, with both sides claiming victory. Together, the states represented a total of 19 electoral votes, which, along with one disputed elector from Oregon, would be enough to swing the election Hayes's way.
1: As Eric Fauner recounts in his book, Forever Free, the story of emancipation and reconstruction, Hayes had pledged in his acceptance of the nomination to bring the blessings of honest and capable local self-government to the South if elected, a statement that could be taken as code for ending reconstruction. In fact, even as the Electoral Commission deliberated, National Party leaders had been meeting in secret to hash out what would become become known as the Compromise of 1877. Soon after his inauguration, Hayes made good on his promise, ordering federal troops to withdraw from Louisiana and South Carolina, where they had been protecting Republican claimants to the governorships in those states. This action marked the effective end of the Reconstruction era and began a period of solid Democratic control in the South. For their part, white Southern Democrats did not honor their pledge to uphold the rights of Black citizens, but moved quickly to reverse as many
2: of Reconstruction's policies as possible. In the decades to come, disenfranchisement of Black voters throughout the South, often through intimidation, and violence helped ensure the racial segregation imposed by Jim Crow by Jim Crow laws, a system that endured for more than half a century until the advances of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. With history's lesson as the backdrop here to help us examine the era of Trump versus reconstruction and Jim Crow is bringing on contributor Amarita Myers, Ruth Hall's associate professor of history and gender studies at Indiana University, Amrita, welcome to Bring
0: It On. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Liz.
1: So, Amrita, we have set the stage for you, and uh, what we are asking you to do is to put this in a historical context and and point out some of the similarities that that took place back then and what we're seeing today because history is repeating itself here and once again black people are going to be on the short end of the stick
0: I think you've done a beautiful job William with your um recounting of events from reconstruction actually <laughs> my well,
1: thank you thank should, you
0: my students should actually listen to this um I was thinking as I was listening to yeah. you Yeah, I think recent events um, have unfolded in such a way that um, I think the nation is still reeling, quite frankly, from the attempted insurrection um, of January the 6th. (laughs) Um, We all knew that it was going to be um, really, really tense when the electors came to cast their ballots. But I think I don't. Um, I'm not sure if anyone quite expected it to unfold the way it did. Although I'll be honest with you, there were several of us, um, at least in my own circle, including myself, who were not surprised. Um, although I think that for myself, um, I was perhaps expecting things to unfold that way on on inauguration day. I've been, I've been waiting, I mean, we've been, we've, we've been watching things unfold this way ever since um, Donald Trump began running for office, right? And this is so, I mean, in some ways, I don't think, I think anyone who's really been um, watching events unfold over the last four or five years shouldn't be surprised that we find ourselves where we are because history has been um, repeating itself for a while. Uh, for people who have been saying um, over the last week or so, 10 days, I'm so surprised, how did we get here? How can this be happening here? Um, is this America? I would simply say to them, um, do you know your history? Have you read a history book? Which history books have you been reading? Because yes, this is a, this is absolutely America. This is actually at the foundation <clears throat> of the country. Um, and in fact, uh, I would go so far as to say that this is a nation that was founded um, in bloodshed and it's an empire, right? It's, we are, this is, the America is an empire and empires um, are built on blood and they die in blood. And what we're actually seeing um, and you're, you know, many of your listeners might be very uncomfortable but with what I'm about to say, but we've been seeing the decline of the American Empire, right? Um, for for several decades, actually, since the end of World War II, and um, the struggles of the decline of that empire um, have been getting worse. But uh, Trump, you know, Trump would have never come to power without 60 million people, and and I mean, 70 more, 74 million people still voted for him the second time around, right? There are, we have to, we are left with that, with that reality, right? But the death throes of empire are real. And so reconstruction is a really good um, way to sort of think about this, um, that we have a nation that is absolutely, we have an empire that is struggling to maintain its grip on its, on power, right? And it's, it's the death throes are violent. What is going to happen moving forward is anyone's best guess. But what we saw play out in the nation's capital and inside the actual Capitol building itself on the 6th of January um, is a really, really stark indication of how far people are willing to go to hold on to that power. And people like me have long been saying that you cannot expect the police, like it's foolish to say, where were the police or why didn't the police do their job? The police are arms of the state and the state has long, the state has always been invested and in the business of upholding white supremacist power. Right, the the, the state has always been in, is invested in upholding the power of property white people's property right if that crowd that had marched up to the capitol building on the 6th of january had been black people brown people if it had been black lives matter protesters and demonstrators what would have happened on the 6th of january they would have never gotten through those barricades because it's happened before they would have never made it in The Capitol Police abdicated their responsibility on the 6th of January because they had no vested interest in turning away white people. They had no vested, because they were part of that superstructure. Just like during Reconstruction, there was an agreement. There was an agreement to take power back from black people and return it to the established legitimate authority of white people because illegal people had been running the country during reconstruction, right? Black people had been in power. Biracial governments had been in power. And this is exactly what we've been seeing happen, right? Barack Obama had come into power, a backlash happened. It was determined that the rightful people had, had, had to come back into power. And now that Trump has legally lost an election we're seeing this tremendous
1: backlash. Let, let, let me jump in there for one minute. OK, something that I was reading in the intro about the uh, agreement between Hayes and Tilden, it says, in fact, even as the Electoral Commission deliberated, National Party leaders had been meeting in secret to hash out what would become known as the Compromise of 1877. When, when Barack Obama was elected, even during his inaugural, Republican leaders are meeting in secret to plot his downfall. And that was just one of the similarities um, I, I can personally easily see. But what are some of your, the other points that you were gonna make?
0: I think that the GOP has been had been looking into how to really maneuver themselves back into a position of power even before Obama's presidency, right, this, the GOP has always done something much better than the Democrats have, right, and that is play the long game, right, and they've been playing the long game for a long time. Look at how they have stacked the courts, and I don't just mean the Supreme Court, I mean from the ground up, Right. They pl- they determined many, many years ago that if they wanted to really retake the country, that they were gonna to have to do it from the bottom up. And so they played the long game and they rebuilt the courts and they put people into power all over the country, right? In like, they put judges into place and they re- and they took over the courts. They also rebuilt the GOP itself, and they re- the GOP today doesn't look anything like it did 50 years ago, right? This is not the same, this is, this is not even really the same Republican party. I mean, it has become a much, much, much more extremist party in many ways. Many of my own like more fiscally conservative Republican friends, have walked away from this particular iteration of the GOP, right? Because they are disgusted with it. They have played to the most extremist elements of this party, they have honed in on certain, right? Fear mongering sort of like tactics in order to bring out the more base elements, right? of, you know, the most, the most fundamentalist base elements of, the, of their voter base. They played to certain things like abortion, like, you know, right, you know, like gay bashing, right? But they've, they've coalesced, right, the party around certain things. And they've pushed it to the right, for much further to the right in certain ways. And they've driven out logic and rational thinking, right, in certain ways. And they pushed it much, much further to the right um, than we ever thought possible. But they've played, they've strategically played it in this way, in ways that the Democrats have been unwilling to do. The Democrats have never been, because it's such a big tent party, and because the Democrats have always wanted to play to civility, play to being nice, to getting along, to welcoming everybody in a way that the Republicans have are really are 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 willing to just jettison, right? They've been they've been able to power pack the lower courts and stack the stack it in a way that we now are in a position where six out of nine justices look the way they do. That is that they've been because they were patient, because they were willing to be ideologically hardcore because they were willing to do that work when they became more of a tea party, you know, party. This is when the shift, you know, that's when they became more outwardly aggressively this new iteration, but they've been playing this game for decades. I mean, you're absolutely right that already when Obama was elected, they began beholding these you know, meetings behind closed doors about how do we retake? But I mean, now we're sitting in a situation where you look at, you know, even in this election, even though Biden won, look at how many governorships, look at how many state houses, and look at how many seats in the lower house of Congress were flipped. We did not have a blue wave across the country that we were hoping for, even though we retook the Oval, this was not a a successful election in the sense that we had hoped it would be, especially when you look at the fact that, that Donald Trump took more popular votes this time than he did in the general election four years ago. Even if we have ousted him, we are left with the remaining problem that this is a more divided nation in 2021 than it was in 2017. We are left with the reality that on the 6th of January, there was an attempted coup on the nation's capital and that not since the war of 1812 has the Capitol rotunda itself been breached. Confederate flags were flown inside that building on the 6th of January. Insurrectionists sat in the in the chair of the Speaker of the House. Looters and pillagers walked through those halls, and the Capitol Police let them walk in. These are things that should absolutely chill every single person who absolutely, who abs- who actually does legitimately consider themselves to be lovers of democracy in this country. People should be horrified.
2: Can I? Bring and uh, uh, Amrita looking at all that that happened on January 6th let's back up to the beginning of America hasn't everything been geared toward whites wasn't this country founded for whites about whites it had nothing to do with people of color so when you said are, are asking people do you know your history do you get the gut feeling that Most of us don't know the history. That's why it repeats itself, number one. Number two, uh, even in Black America, we have not really looked at everything either because uh, it's the constitution and everything, every piece of paper is geared toward white America supporting them and downplaying people of color. Is that not true? Can you speak to that? And then of course, it, it was easy for Jim Crow to be put in place. what is this fear? let's let's back up to that area because that helped propel where we are today now.
0: oh I mean, I'm so glad that you asked me this question Liz because that of course is I mean first of all yes 100% um, I agree with you and this is this takes me right back to my own you know area of of study, I mean, I'm a scholar of slavery, right? First and foremost, um, scholar of black women and slavery. I mean, there was absolutely no, no question that this was a country, you know, founded by and for white people. This is, this this country was a capital, was and is a capitalist enterprise, right? I yes. mean, let, let's be, let's be clear, right? It was, Never intended to be a nation where black and brown people were to be citizens in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we're we're sitting on stolen land, right? I mean, indigenous, stolen indigenous land. Uh, it's a capitalist enterprise. Black people were brought here, stolen, and brought here for the purpose of working that stolen land in order to enrich you know, Europeans who were sending those profits back, right, to enrich European nations, um, as well as themselves. I mean, this was never intended to be, um, this was, I mean, I always tell my students that the Virginia plantation, when the Virginians arrived, they didn't even intend to stay here full term long, you know, long to long term full time. The thought was to get rich quick, and then move back to their mother countries and purchase you know, noble titles for themselves and estates back home in England. They were not even planning on staying here for the long term. They didn't see this as being their home. Home was back across the ocean. They just wanted to you know, rape, loot and pillage this land to take what was, you know, take what they could from it and then leave, right? But when it became a place where they saw themselves as having to stay, right? It was still about taking what they could from it and using other people to like exhaust the resources and riches from it, right? And so you're absolutely right, 100%. And I mean, all of these, when we talk about, when people talk about, This being the land of the free and the home of the brave and the documents like the founding documents like the Constitution, I said, the Constitution has nothing to do with black people. It has nothing to do with Native Americans. It has nothing to do with anyone who looks like me. Let's be very, very clear. Mm -hmm. Right. Every single when you look through when you look through those founding documents, when you look through the Declaration of Independence. When you look through the Constitution, those documents were created again very clearly to protect and preserve and uphold the rights of white property men. And, and, I, and I very much emphasize property because when people talk about how, you know, it, I do a lot of work around policing, right? And I've been doing a lot of work around policing over the last six years. Um, people get really heated when I talk about, right, they're like, police are here to protect and serve. And I'm like, protect and serve what and whom, right? Police were instituted to protect and serve white people's property. And what property was that? Policing arose up out of the slave patrol. They were instituted specifically to protect... White people's property and threats to white people's property. They were there to make sure that, in that you know, white people's land was protected, and that white people's enslaved property did you know was protected. That mm-hmm. people that enslaved people didn't run away. And that if they did run away, that they were recaptured and brought back and that enslaved people didn't rise up in insurrection and threaten white people's property. There was, when, when we're talking about that period of reconstruction and all of a sudden police officers are told that black people are now citizens in need of protection, that switch is just impossible to make for them
1: they just couldn't make the connection they,
0: they, they couldn't make that switch they couldn't make that connection they had been trained for over 150 years by that point to see black people as either property as either property or a threat to white people's property and to now be told that black people were citizens in need of protection they couldn't make that switch even northern Police forces like Boston, which was the first official police force established in the 1800s, had been told that white citizens were in need of protection from black people, who were a threat. They were they were you know they were thugs. They were dangerous. They were the, the negative elements. So all of a sudden, to be told that you now have to protect these people, they were like, "What are you talking about?" So no all of these founding documents women were not in these founding documents native americans were not in these founding documents black people are not in these founding documents <laughs> and it's not just white people who don't understand this history even a lot of people of color don't understand this they talk about upholding these documents you know you know talking about i mean they themselves we, you know we ourselves do not understand this history So when when students come into my classroom, no matter what their background, whether they're Latinx, whether they're white, whether they're Black, whether they're Indigenous, whether they're gay, straight, doesn't matter. First, I teach all of them the same history because most of them don't know the history because the K through 12 system doesn't teach them this history.
2: That's correct. That's absolutely correct. One other thing I, I just wanted to injected this, I was raised during the Jim Crow era. And I think when I think about that now, how sad it was um, that here all of us little black kids in a segregated school had to stand up. The first thing we did every morning was to stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag. And when thinking back on that now just brings tears because we were pledging allegiance to a country that did, that hated us, uh. and we had no idea what we were doing.
0: Well, I, you know, I always think it's a little bit strange to like make people pledge allegiance to a flag, or or, or you know, I mean, to a country or to you know. But I, I grew up in Canada, and we don't have that system of pledging allegiance to um, to a flag or a nation. I mean, I, I sort of find it a little bit, um, I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, may, maybe the next time you come on, that that's something uh, it, that, that you can give us some insight into the, the, the history of how we came to pledge allegiance to the flag. Yeah. But uh, there was another question I wanted to ask you so back in 1877 um after rutherford hayes made the agreement um they removed the troops from i think it was four states in the south right yes. mm-hmm. and what happened the black vote was suppressed or just outright denied and that followed just all sorts of violent acts wow. and massacres uh what in some of those that that we're gonna talk about.
0: South Carolina, yeah, had some of the worst uprisings and violence. Yeah,
1: North Carolina, Tulsa, but like I said, we're gonna get into that. And black people were prevented from holding elected office. So compare that to 2013, the Voting Rights Act was effectively removed, just like those federal troops. Now the law remains in effect, but it was weakened to the point where it it has very little uh, effect. So immediately after that decision, Republican lawmakers in Texas and North Carolina, uh, two states that were previously covered by the law, immediately enacted voter ID laws. Correct. And voter suppression just went through the roof. And once again, Black people's right to vote was denied. Because uh, one example, Brian Kemp, current governor of Texas, purged more than one hundred thousand people while he was Georgia's secretary of state. I think one of the other states, uh, Michigan or Wisconsin, under uh, what was the governor's name Scott somebody, uh, can't remember his last name, but they purged well over one hundred thousand people from the voter rolls. So what you have. It? in effect is Black folks being denied the right to vote. Now, there were some other people caught up in that, but we know who the target was. Mm-hmm. So based on those two incidents, uh, modern day and historical, um, what, what do you see as the next similar comparison uh, historically? Does that make sense?
0: You're wanting me to project forward and predict what
1: might happen next. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Let me reword that. I want you to identify uh, any other similarities that may have already, you know, between that period, 1800s, and modern day. If you can come up with something off the top of your head.
0: No, I mean, but I mean, we're. With- We're living it, I mean, if you look at the rise of all of these Uh groups, look at all the rise of the militia groups that, that are happening, that have been happening all over the country. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that was happening in the 1860s and 1870s, Right. This is when the Klan, this is when we saw the rise of the Klan. Right. The regulators, the Knights of the White Camellia, the Ku Klux Klan. This is exactly when it was all happening. Right. We saw consistent acts of racially motivated violence. Simply because black people were beginning to become successful because they were voting because they were getting elected to office, because they were standing up for themselves, right? I mean, so white people could not stand to see black people being successful. And so they took they took that, I mean, they literally, you, so you began to see individual acts of violence, you began to see black people being targeted But you began to see the rise of extra legal militia groups. What have we seen happen over the last five years? The rise of extra legal militia groups all over the country, the three percenters, the Proud Boys. And they're openly marching, they're gathering force. We had what I mean, we had that terrible Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, right? Mm -hmm. And they're being, but they've been egged on and their growth, their numbers, their growth in their numbers has been exponential because they've had a president in the White House who has said, there's good people on both sides. They're not so bad. Who has, who has refused to, I mean, to say that this is appalling, abhorrent behavior who's actually been encouraging them, right? Who's been saying like, await my signal basically, right?
1: Oh, and he loves the people that were out there on January the 6th now.
0: Absolutely. And you have, you have them being aided and abetted by members of the police force, which is exactly what was happening in the 1860s and 1870s because members of law enforcement, sheriffs, lawyers, judges were members, card-carrying members of the Klan, of the regulators, of the Knights of the White Camellia. They were, you could not get actual help from law enforcement to act, to arrest, adjudicate and imprison people who were involved in these organizations and who, who carried out these terrible heinous crimes because law enforcement were actual members of these organizations. That is what you see again, playing out right before your eyes today. Look at what happened here in Bloomington surrounding our farmer's market. We had 3% militia openly walking through our market, carrying weapons. We had unarmed protesters who were arrested for singing songs and carrying signs.
2: I have a question, Amrita, and you just mentioned, whites can't stand Blacks becoming successful. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, I think it goes back to the fact that this country is a capitalist enterprise. Okay. Which was founded on the whole, the premise was right white people of european descent came here to get wealthy and black people were brought here people of african descent were brought here as laborers right and and, and again indigenous people we stole their land their land was stolen right on which to per- perpetuate this entire crime it's not only a capitalist enterprise it's a criminal enterprise right people of african descent were never meant to actually become free That in and of itself is a contradiction of terms. And they were never meant to become the owners of anything. They were never meant to become the owners of production, the owners of anything. Look at what happened in Ida B. Wells' hometown, right? When, I mean, one of the worst lynchings that happened in Memphis. Why was that lynching carried out? It was not because the owners of the grocery store attacked a white woman. It was because these three black men started a cooperative black grocery store and went into direct competition against the white grocery store in town. They had the nerve to be successful. They had the, they were three wonderful, family men who opened up a grocery store and started beating the white man at his own game. And these men couldn't stand it. They were church going, they were voting, they were going into competition against the white men. And these white folks lost their damn minds. Oh, pardon me. They lost their minds. And so they picked up guns, and they attacked these grocery store owners and they sh- and they dragged them out and they beat them and they shot them for no other reason other than the fact that these men had the nerve to open up a grocery store and go into competition against them so look at look at what's happening today right do you think that it's any surprise that it has taken Stacey Abrams over a decade of sheer hard work and organizing and activism, and not just Stacy, she will be the first to tell you. She has said, it has taken an, a team of black and brown women organizing and, 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 and of activism in Georgia to flip Georgia. And she has constantly said, it's not me. It's a team. It's not me. It's a team. She's I'm always saying Fair Fight, right? Fair Fight is a huge organization that has worked tirelessly to turn Georgia. But why has it taken until 2021 for a for a black man to be elected senator from the state of Georgia? Not I mean. It's not that we've had other senators from Georgia. It has taken until 2021, right? There were, during reconstruction, we had black senators elected from yeah. Mississippi and Louisiana, right? blanche yeah. K. Bruce, Hiram Revels, And since then, it has been a desert, right? The South, it has been, and, but it's not because Southerners haven't been actively working, right? You have women and men like Ashley Woodard Henderson and others working across the South tirelessly to try to bring, but this, I mean, it has been literally reconstruction ended and then it has been like a desert because they literally redemption came in. That's what they called it. You have to understand the terminology, language matters, right? The civil war ended Reconstruction came in and when Reconstruction ended, white Southerners came in and they called it redemption. We are redeeming the South for white people. And after redemption came in, it was what? We call it Jim Crow, but it was it's segregation, right? But they called it redemption. We are redeeming the South for white people. And even after civil rights, we have still not seen black people, brown people, people indigenous people. We have still not seen them be able to take senate, senatorial seats. Why is Raphael, Dr. Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock? Why is he the first black person to hold a senate seat in Georgia? In 2021, it has taken this long because redemption has had that much power. Redemption is about it is evil. It is about power. It is about money. It is about sin. I mean, I can't call it anything more than that's what it is. That's how, that's how deep the roots go in this evil capitalist enterprise because it's about power. It's about power.
2: So Amrita, is it fair to say, to make it simple,
0: capitalism is racism. Oh, they're intimately connected. They're intimately connected. You cannot divorce the one from the other. This country was intimately about power and money and capitalism. And the engine has been driven by the blood of racism. They are intimately You can't divorce the one from the other. And that's why they've been fighting so hard to keep it going. Because they know that if they hand over if they if they hand over the reins, if they if they get rid of racism, if they allow black and brown people, women, indigenous people, if they give over power to us, if they share power with us,
1: for our listening audience, we're speaking to bringing on contributor Amrita Myers, Ruth Hall's associate professor of history and gender studies at Indiana University. So, Amrita, uh, I wanted to ask you this event that happened in uh, North Carolina. I'm sorry. Yeah, Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, Mm. where white nationalists in Wilmington massacred the city's black population and overthrew its newly elected mayor. That was in 1898. But uh, can you think of anything else since then that compares to that incident?
0: Well, that was only the first. <laughs> well, now, <laughs> I mean-
1: Okay, talk to us.
0: But there have, there have been so many um, situations like that. I mean, there have been so many uprisings across across history when you think of what happened in Rosewood, when you think of Tulsa, Oklahoma, when you think of Atlanta um, in 1911, um, it's actually just kind of heartbreaking, actually, when you think about American history, that there's more more uprisings and more bloodshed than there are periods of peace. Like this is a nation that is actually one that is, it's steeped in violence. Right. And that's why I said like empires that empires are, are born in bloodshed and they end in bloodshed. I mean, people are like, Oh, I mean, we talk about 1776. I mean, this is a country that was born in revolution. Right. Yeah. But I go back further than that. I mean, I, I don't think about 1776. I think about, you know, the, the 1400s, the 1500s. I'm like, from the moment, like people stepped foot here, it's been bloodshed and violence. So, I mean, William, like you're talking about, you know, North. We know you're talking about North Carolina. I think about Rosewood. I think about Tulsa. I think about Atlanta. Um, There is a string of these kinds of, and even the 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 Memphis riot that, and lynching that I mentioned that that Ida B. Wells graphically recounts um, in her personal memoir where one of her dearest friends was lynched. Um, But even not, and I mean, there were incidences stretching back into the 19th century in Philadelphia, in New York, right? The draft riots in New York City where white people rise up in outrage because how dare you ask, draft us to fight, um, to free, you know, to help free black people, right? Um, The rationales are always um, given, uh, you know, are sort of articulated differently, but at root, it always boils down to the fact that white folks don't want to live with Black people. They don't want to fight for the freedom of Black people. They don't want to be um, in situations where Black people hold any kind of economic power, right? Rosewood and Tulsa are, are very, very clear indications of that, right? But so is Atlanta, right? You, you look at any situation where, I mean, Philadelphia is an indication of that. They always attack sections of town where Black people have economic you know, prosperity, where they're homeowners, where they are business owners, right? white mobs going into black towns or black sections of towns and destroying them, which goes back to the, you know, this, the conversation that we were having, uh, you know, I was having with Liz about the intersections of racism and capitalism and power, right? When black people are simply laboring grunts and providing financial prosperity for white people who are the owners of power, Um, Right. That's great. The owners of production. But when black and brown people become the owners of production, when we are prosperous, when we are not just holding the reins of political power, but when we are the owners of capitalist production ourselves, that's that's not going to fly. Right. When we are in business for ourselves, when we are providing money and jobs for each other, when we are no longer tied to right, the white owners of production. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about a, a, a senatorial seat. It's about the fact that they can see that they are no longer, that they are losing control of us, right? OK.
1: successful Black people are typically viewed as a threat.
0: You're a threat. Look at the fact that the numerical majority in this country has is is shifting and has been shifting quite a while, right? By 2040, which is not that far away, it's less than a generation now. The the numerical majority in this country is going to shift racially, right? Black and brown people are going to be the numerical majority in the United States by 2040, 2043 at the latest. What does that mean for white people? They think it means that we are going to treat them the way they have been treating us for 400 years. See, they think that because yeah. white see, white power and white supremacy has looked a, ver- a certain way for four centuries. They fear that black power is going to look a certain way. They don't, they, and so their terror that they have been that they have been you know, imposing upon us, the death throes that we're seeing of, of American Empire, the, the reason it looks the way it does, is because they are terrified that we are going to meet out upon them what they have been meeting out upon us for over four centuries.
1: But you know what? There is absolutely no basis for that.
0: That's exactly my point. There is no basis for that. Fundamentally, we have never, ever, ever once shown ourselves to be who they are. But they-
2: You said- And I have, for the last two years, been um, interviewing and asking various uh, white men of different ages that very same question, what is your fear? And they have virtually all said, we think you're going to treat us like we have treated you. We are afraid you're going to take our stuff, that you're going to be you have shown that you can be more successful than us, uh, even though we've oppressed you. If given the opportunity, you fly, you soar. We're afraid of that. And, and again, the, the crust of it is, we think you're going to treat us like we've treated you. But then why don't their treatment stop? If you're afraid of that, if you're afraid of the browning of America, which the press and everybody's been putting out now for about 20 years, has been on Time Magazine and and, and various uh, news media, the browning of America, and that's to instill that fear. And Rita, tell me what you think of. Then why
0: not? Why not stop? Just stop what you're doing to us. Because
1: well, it goes deeper than that,
0: it, it goes so much deeper than that. like I mean, we're literally talking about you, we, you know, there are people who you have this top when you think about it, about ten percent of this, this country owns about seventy percent of the wealth. Think about the financial disparity that we're talking about. It might even be it might even be less than that. It might be like five percent. I mean, it is absolutely amazing to me, like how much money and land and power resides in how few hands. Like you're literally talking about the, the puppeteers who are pulling the strings, right? And they have literally for centuries been inciting race war, right? They're, they're literally stoking these, these fanning these flames. You know, they're, they're telling people, they're inciting the masses and telling them, like, Black people are going to, you know, they're going to kill you. They're going to wipe you off the face of the planet. They're in, but they're inciting race war because they're telling them that we're going to perpetuate genocide. And people believe this nonsense. People believe this nonsense. They believe that we are, that, that we are demons, that we are going to perpetuate genocide, and so that they have to perpetuate it first.
1: So if there's no basis for that, and Liz, you asked a good question, then if if you have no reason to believe that, then why don't you stop? That tells me it comes down to pure, unadulterated racism and nothing more. But Amrita, you mentioned something uh, interesting, which made me think about the uh, situation in Oklahoma, mm. where they stoked the fears. This was a newspaper publisher, stoked the fears of, of, of uh, white people in Oklahoma. But that wasn't the only place that's happened where they would constantly, they, they had a weapon that they would use. It was very effective, constantly portray the black man as this big beast preying mm-hmm. on white women. Mm-hmm. And after we ravage your white women, then we're going to come for you and your homes and your children. And it worked so um a few days ago when donald trump stood in front of this these masses of people and he he just whipped them into a frenzy i mean this guy pretty much started a mac truck and put it in gear and sent it down the road without a driver what's that truck going to do when it when it gets to it's going to crash into the first thing that it runs through that's why all those people um ended up just just devastating the capital and like you said before um they were just strolling around casually after they went in and shot the place up looted and pillaged just strolling and and loitering as if they just had a good meal or something Mm -hmm. and then the capital police um, taking selfies with these people.
0: Oh, yep.
1: And we're going to do a separate show about uh, on that issue in a few days. But talk about the massive failure of security. I remember when Barack Obama had one of his early presidential rallies after he got uh, elected. And it, it wasn't really a rally, but he was appearing somewhere. And these people showed up the Secret Service allowed them to come in, uh, carrying automatic weapons strapped to their bodies, and the uh, the failure of security was just just so massive. You have to wonder if if the security forces were complicit
0: this in some have, of that to some degree. A failure of security. This is these are accomplices. This could not have happened without people in the Capitol Police and D.C. police forces being complicit. Yes. They were involved in what happened on the 6th of January. You have to understand, just like the members of the police forces during Reconstruction, people in the sheriff's departments, people who were lawyers, people who were judges, were members of the regulators and the Klan, right? They were involved. People on January the 6th, were involved. The the protesters, the insurrectionists in DC could not have gotten into the Capitol building. They could have got they could not have gotten past the barricades and past the police forces if the police themselves were not members. They were involved. The mayor of DC called for National Guard two days prior to January 6th and the mayor was refused National Guardsmen. Why? I don't know people if people don't realize that because D.C. is not a state, the mayor has to request from the Congress, right? They have to request from Congress National Guardsmen to be called out. The mayor knew that something was going to happen. They were, they were, the mayor was concerned. That is why the mayor requested National Guardsmen. The mayor was denied that request. This was an inside job. Hmm. That is what I'm saying to you. People knew something was going to happen. The request was denied. People in the Capitol Police Force and the DC police knew what was coming. They helped this tra- travesty to occur.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. We got about two minutes left. Liz, did you uh, have anything you wanted to add before we?
2: Well, I want, you brought up something. You talked about them having guns and walking in on January 6th with guns strapped and-
0: Let me say something. What do you think would have happened if those protesters had been Black? Uh, There would have been a
2: bloodbath.
0: They're they're not protesters, they're insurrectionists. What would have happened if they'd been Black? They would have been shot dead. They would have never made it past the fence.
2: They wouldn't have never made it past it. And And hopefully people know that. Even the news media know that. They're asking the question, what would have happened if they were Black? We know that they would have been killed. Uh, even even Blacks run away, running away would have been killed. There would have been a bloodbath. Exactly. Uh, you brought up having guns and walking around with guns. You're, uh, not, maybe you're too young, both of you are too young. Huey Newton in California exercised their rights with guns. And guess what happened? The laws were changed.
0: Exactly. And
2: a Black man walking around with a gun, oh, hell no. So the The laws were changed in California to protect whites. They didn't want to see us walking around with guns, with uh,
0: exercising our legal rights. The only time we've seen gun control laws, Liz, you're absolutely right, is when the Panthers began exercising their Second Amendment rights in California. And all of a sudden, people are like, we need gun control because the Second Amendment is only for white people.
1: Well, Wendell Pierce had it exactly right. Wendell Pierce said, you want to see gun control, tell every Black man to register to buy a handgun.
0: Exactly.
1: But anyway, so folks, unfortunately, uh, we're out of time. Amrita, I want to thank you again for coming in, uh, providing your insight onto the issue. We want to thank Bring It On contributor Amrita Myers, Ruth Halls, Associate Professor of History and Gender Studies at Indiana University. She came on to help us examine the era of Trump versus Reconstruction and Jim Crow.
2: Bring It On has an open submission of policy. So if you have an idea of this program or an event or happening, the African-American community should know about it. Let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address again is bringiton at wfhb.org.
1: Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is yours truly. Our consultant and WFHB news department director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Chantal Lafontant. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea.
2: And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On. Right here, your community radio station, WFHB.
0: You've been listening to Bring It On